This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to Captains with me, Sam Warburton. This is the podcast where each week I swap stories and compare notes and get some fascinating leadership insights from the biggest names in sport. And this week is a really special one. Ryder Cup winning captain, Paul McGinley. There's no correlation between the better the player, the better the captain. Captain is a completely different skill set. And in fact, you can nearly have the argument that the best players are generally not the best captains. I know I'm not the best golfer ever played the game. I know I'm not the best captain that ever captained, but I, I do feel that like I moved it to a new level. Yes, you gotta have the intensity, but you can't flip over into anxiety. When it flips over into anxiety, you got a problem. I genuinely love the Ryder Cup and I can't wait until it comes around every two years. My golf game is terrible. You only have to ask the rugby boys that I've played with and George North would regularly wipe the floor with me on a day off. I'm on a golf sabbatical at the moment because I've got a young family and I got another on the way so I've put the sticks away for a few years time. Paul is now a big player in the business world. His insight and infectious enthusiasm and attention to detail shine through. He talks a lot about the importance of clarity and that is really important. I think when you're a leader, it is easy to overload others on your team with information. And Paul is a big advocate of keeping things simple, which I love. Enjoy the episode. Here's Paul McGinley. So today on Captains, I'm joined by a man who's the envy to all professional sports people across the world because you can actually play golf to an extremely high level, is Paul McGinley. Paul, <laughs> pleasure to meet you and thank you so much for coming on. I don't know about the word still uh, play to that <laughs> level, Sam. Uh, there's an old saying in golf, my, my mind is writing checks that my body can't cash. Uh, so. <laughs> but if I said to you now, what would you be pl- what would you be playing off? Not even like a, a top course. What would well, you be sort of shooting? The members, now? the members put me off plus three around Sunningdale, so that's oh, kind of my dear. standard when we're playing oh, for money. God, so I can only, I can only dream. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was that good all the time no, because I'm I'm awful. But I mean, every sports person plays golf, whether they play yeah. it well or not. But it's just one of those things they do. But anyway, so just for maybe the minority of listeners who who don't know. Could you give us just a brief overview of the Ryder Cup? Yeah, the Ryder Cup is a tournament nearly 100 years old. It was started by an old seed farmer from Britain, and it's the leading 12 players from Europe against the leading 12 players from America. It's played every second year, and yeah, it's one of the most watched and, and biggest sporting uh, events in the year. Uh, unusual in the individual sport that golf is uh, to come together then as a team. So it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. You've won three times as a player and once as captain. What are the common denominators across those four victories as a player and as a captain? Wow, that's a good question. And uh, yeah, I've done two as a vice captain as well. So I'm six for six. And uh, obviously the talent has got to be there for the start. And, you know, I call it a template. We can get into that a bit deeper in in terms of what worked for Europe and what was our DNA. And certainly when I became captain in 2014, looking over the previous Ryder Cups that I was involved in, I was, what I tried to do was go through everyone and pick out what had worked, uh, what had not worked and, and, you know, identify very much into words what the uh, template was. So I think talent more than anything else has to be there. You know, we're lucky, I was certainly lucky to be part of uh, a a great uh, surge in talent coming through uh, in Europe. We had uh, great teammates, as you well know, you're only as good as your teammates around you. And and we were very well captained. I, I was very lucky that I learned a lot and played under and played with all the greats of European golf from, you know, Faldo, Lyle, Woosnam, Langer, uh, Seve, you know, right up to the modern guys of, of McElroy. I've either played with or captained 
I've been lucky to be in that peak period uh, of huge, unbelievable amount of success on, that we had in Europe. It's interesting you said then you picked up some of the, the good things and bad things. It's sort of like, you know, learning vicariously. You see good things, you see good traits, which you like from people, but you also see bad traits. Do you learn what not to do as much as you learn what to do when you had those earlier Ryder Cup experiences as a player? Yeah, I think you take a bit from everything and it's not just in your own team, Sam. I mean, I learned a lot from America as well and, and what they were doing. They should have beaten us in all of these Ryder Cups. They were favourites in all of these Ryder Cups. These five experiences that I was involved in, America were the favourites each time and yet we managed to beat them. And, and I saw them making mistakes and, and it was whether it was the pairings, whether it was tactically, uh, whether it was not using data, whether it was a bit of arrogance and, you know, I just putting the players out and thinking, oh, we're too good for them and we'll beat them. Whether it was not respecting the fact that the dynamic dynamic in the Ryder Cup is very, very different than on an individual basis. So a guy who's ranked two or three or four in the world, um, you know, that doesn't equate to playing 18 holes against the guy, you know. So it's not apples with apples when it comes to a Ryder Cup. Sometimes you have a partner, sometimes you're on your own, and it's a sprint, it's over 18 holes. So the dynamic is very, very different, and the, the, the psychology of play is very, very different, and the psychology and style of a player is very, very different. You know, I felt I had an edge, certainly, um, back in 2014, because I don't think America had figured that out I think they figured it out since yeah it was certainly picking a team that was going to sit the exam that a Ryder Cup is which is a very very different exam just because 12 of your players might be rated in the top 20 players in the world that doesn't mean they're all going to be great Ryder Cup players because as I say the style of golf that's asked to play in a Ryder Cup is very very different so for, I was very much about uh, sitting the exam preparing and sitting for the exam uh, of what a Ryder Cup match is so many people struggle to play golf Never mind that the, the in the pressure cooker with with millions of people watching like a Ryder Cup. As a captain, what would be some of the key traits from a mental perspective that you look for from your players? I like energy, Sam. I, I like sprinters. You know, Ian Poulter. To go back to him, you know, there was a reason why he was a great Ryder Cup player. You know, he's got a big heart. We know that. But a lot of golfers have got big hearts. But he's an aggressive guy. He's always up. He's never on a down. He's can't wait. He's like a greyhound waiting to get out of the box. You know, Tiger Woods is not a greyhound. You know, Tiger Woods was a guy that was trained and measured to win over four rounds. He was very, very patient. Jack Nicklaus was the same. He talks about his greatest trait as a golfer was his ability to be patient and they were always running marathons they were trained to be marathon winners and that's why they won so many major championships and that's why they won so many you know the two greatest players that ever played the game is that was their mentality that's what their training was and that was very much their psychology when they played so it was difficult for both of them I felt to adapt to being Ryder Cup and the start was really important one of the things that statistics and I think I, I was the first uh, captain on either team to use statistics uh, in, in a professional manner we had a statistic team there working behind me and uh, obviously it's a huge part of what it is now just like in all analytics is a huge part of all sport but I was the first captain to bring it to the Ryder Cup and it identified very very clearly the importance of the first six holes in these 18 hole matches and they're the kind of things that I learned you know I was not a, a major winner myself I had a very good record when it came to match play an excellent record when it came to match play in fact better than I did when it came to stroke play and I understood momentum and I got it and I understood the importance of a shot I understood how to come out of the blocks quick and no matter who you're playing if you got one up on them you know turn the tables on them very very quickly then get the two up and keep putting that pressure on never give them a hole never give them a shot and before you know it the game is over and uh, I like that style of play it was it was good for my mentality it made me focus a lot clearer rather than the long-term kind of marathon sprinter uh, 
mindset that that sort of didn't come as easy to me. Joe, I'm actually loving this already. Obviously, love the Ryder Cup, and I'm already getting a, a real big sense of emotion and passion from yourself. And my, one of my questions was going to be, like in traditional, say rugby, you know, traditional sport where it's like very physically combative, where you know speeches can be very emotional and. You, can't, you do need to get yourself kind of um, aroused emotionally. But I always wonder with golf, the Ryder Cup seems so emotional. When you're talking to the guys, are you quite an emotional speaker or do you have to make sure golfers remain a level of composure and they can't spill over into too much emotion? How do you get that balance right or where do you pitch those speeches when you talk to the boys? That's a great question, Sam. And, and, and this is where I think we slightly differ from, uh, from your sport, you know, where you can go out and get rid of that emotion by giving somebody a hard shoulder or a hard tackle. And, you know, you have to be built up and you have to be psychologically ready for that. Um, obviously, you're not hitting anybody in golf so it's a different mindset you know there's a bit of zen involved in being a good golfer you know I certainly again my experience of when I played my best golf it's almost like you're in an unconscious state and you're it's like driving a car and you, you don't know what you're doing or how you're changing gears but you're doing it and that's what you do when you play your best golf and you play your worst golf when you're actually thinking of everything you're doing and where your swing is and what you're doing and you're you're caught up so the first thing was our team meetings were no longer than 10 minutes long and every evening it was at nine o'clock and that was it 10 minutes and no more than that. The second thing was the importance of simplicity and clarity. Every player with all my, my indirect communication with them, in other words, not, not at a team meeting, was done on a one-to-one basis. Most of my captaining was done on a one-to-one basis because what I'm going to say to Rory McIlroy is going to be very, very different than what I'm going to say to Martin Keimer from Germany and what I'm going to say to Stephen Gallagher from Scotland and all different levels of players. So there's, there's only so much you can say that's going to relate to everybody. And more than anything else, it was to play what, what, what we call you know a smile on our face. When I look back again over all of the great Ryder Cup teams that I was involved in, the common denominator there kept coming out was how much fun we had. You know, nobody was ever like up to here and really worried and tense and oh my God. And, you know, and I think the Americans were more affected than we were because they were pressured on them because they were favourites that didn't deal with it so good. We were always, you know, the hunter, not the hunted. And it's a lot easier being the hunter and having a bit of fun and not expected to win. And the expectation levels are not the same. So it's almost like an adventure. It's a voyage that we're all in this together and nobody's expecting us to win. And, and that kind of released us and, and, and to play. And I wanted to bring that into the table, even though, in 2014 when I was captain we were actually slight favourites I think that was the first time Europe were ever slight favourites playing at home um, but I also I wanted to bring in that mentality of uh, being the hunter not the hunted uh, and to have fun in what we were doing and see this as an adventure and yes you got to have the intensity but you're absolutely right it can't flip over in, into anxiety when it flips over into anxiety you got a problem and again I learned that Sam Torrance was a brilliant captain just pitching that right you know, I, I I call him, I had him as a vice captain uh, myself and he was the first captain I played under in Ryder Cups and, you know, I call him the happiest man in the room. Every time you saw Sam, he had the beaming smile on his face at Ryder Cups. You could see he loved it, even if it was in the evening time, having a glass of wine, having a bit of crack, the bit of banter, all of that stuff. It was really important that we had that dynamic going on and I cultivated that. I, I, I purposely cultivated it. I had people in there, vice captains that I picked that were going to bring that to the table. There wasn't going to be too much intensity. My captaincy was was not going to be intense it was about you know letting the guys prepare in their own individual ways they are individual golfers they've been trained since the age of 13 to be individuals and I wasn't going to all of a sudden change that dynamic of what they were good at and what they trained to be uh, with it with oh no this is the mentality you have to have I kind of took what they were and let them kind of grow within 
what they would normally do, which is, you know, a team within a team, basically, and not to over-team it. And just because you're in a team now doesn't mean we always have to eat together and we always have to do everything together and, you know, we're bonded at the hip now and we, you know, it's different in rugby and this is where golf was different. We're coming from an individual sport. That individual mindset, I wanted to preserve. I didn't want to change it into a team. This is where there was a big difference from Ryder Cup to, you know, your sport and what you did, where it is very much you're relying on the guy on your shoulder. In golf, you're not really relying on the guy on your shoulder. And, and uh, you know, that individual mindset that they have on a week-to-week basis, it was important to preserve and enhance and empower that. So that's why the meetings were no more than 10 minutes every night. And I said to the guys every evening, look, there's a buffet. It'll run from 5.30 and it'll finish at 10. So if you're Miguel Jimenez and you like a glass of wine and you want to come in at 10 o'clock and eat at 10 o'clock because that's what you do, the Spanish, the buffet will be there at 10. If you're Henrik Stenson and you're Swedish and you want to eat and you want to digest that and you want to get to the gym and you want to have a massage, you can do that too. This idea of all sitting down together and having team dinners and big long team meetings, no. You're individuals and, and I'm going to empower you to be individuals this week. Of course, we're playing collectively as a team, but the mindset has got to be what you do on a week-to-week basis. We're not going to change things. This is about simplicity and clarity and not overcomplicating it. I love those two words. I, I read something where you said those, simplicity and clarity. And I remember thinking um, you would have made a great rugby coach because we, when we have meetings, and people find this really surprising. I'm glad you've said it. We had once a team meeting with a new set of coaches and it went for about 25 minutes. And we had a really experienced um, head of analysis and he said to me, wow, that was too long. Boys can't absorb anything beyond 10 minutes. It has to be concise. I remember when I was presenting to the boys, if I was doing something on my niche role or aspect of the game, they say, you've got three minutes, Sam, to present. Three minutes. And I'd have to sum up the team we're playing against in three minutes. Otherwise, it's just, it's too much. So I absolutely, I I, I love that. And I haven't heard too many people say about, because people think, well, no, you have to. You have to cover all the bases. And I think that's where a lot of coaches and captains get it wrong. You have to have a bit of trust in your players. You can't Mm. cover absolutely everything. So I I love you say that because I think that's so important. People certainly over-egg over-egg their meetings. I got a lot of that too. You know, I had Alex Ferguson, who I conversed a bit with over the two-year period that I was captain, Sam, and I asked him to come and speak to the team on the Tuesday night. And, you know, rather than think him saying, yeah, sure, I'll come and speak, he said, okay, I'll come and speak on two conditions. First of all, there's no publicity about it. I don't want everybody to know that I'm going to be there. It's going to leak out afterwards. That's fine. But before that, don't tell anybody. I said, that's that's easy, no problem. And the second thing is, he said, you tell me what messages you want to get to the team. This is, you're the captain. Uh, you tell me the ideas that you're going to be speaking to the team about and let me come in with some football stories on the back of that. So I wrote them down, you know, three or four of the main principles that we were coming in with and, you know, what I wanted them to talk about. And that's what he did. And, and rather than come in and saying, this is what you have to do, you must do this, you have to do that, he came in and he told stories. But the stories had a point to it. You know, again, it was simplicity. It wasn't rocket science. Alex Ferguson doesn't talk in, in rocket science or, or in, uh, you know, round and round and round in circles. You know, it's very precise and it's normally a story and it comes with a lot of emotion. That croaky Scottish voice that he has, it, uh, it certainly sticks. Uh, you know, everybody in the room was a, was a football fan and, and a couple of them knew that it was going to be Alex Ferguson coming in, but a lot of them didn't. So uh, him walking into the door into our team room was uh, was great. And uh, he got the messages across that we wanted in a very simple and clear fashion. I love that. When you said there was like three or four points, can you remember what they were? Well, just the points we talked about here, um, about fun, and that was the main one. Um, another one that, you know, certainly I played, and as I say, the three Ryder Cups I played in, I, I was kind of six to 12 in the team. I was not, you know, I was never a Rory McIlroy or a Monty or guys like that. You know, I was always the guy that kind of played three matches out of five, and I was a six to 12 player. But... 
it's it's important. Those six to twelve players are really really important because there will be a time during the week when it's their turn to shine. So what I wanted them to do was, you know, not just speak to the Rory McIlroys in the team and the Sergio Garcias in the team. You got to speak to the Stephen Gallagher's and because I was that soldier, the guy down the bottom, and it's very important for those guys not to feel like they're second rate. So you know, something along the lines of you know everybody's going to have you know, a time to shine. You know, I had that in 2002 when, you know, from, from being, you know, at 10, 11 on the team, you know, I, I had ended up having a putt to win a Ryder Cup and it was my turn to shine. And so he came in and he told a story about uh, about Canadian geese and how they fly, you know, thousands and thousands of miles across the Atlantic and they always fly in a V. And when the one at the front gets tired, he goes back and another one goes to the front, another one, you know, like, like a peloton as well too in cycling. So those kind of stories were really poignant and cut right to the, to the point that was trying trying to make about, uh, you know, there will be a time to shine for everybody in the team and a time when you do go to the front and then a time when you, when you retrace back. So it was that kind of stuff and it was simplicity and it was fun and it was banter. And uh, he told a couple of stories about uh, about uh, dressing rooms and stuff like that and how much fun they had and the wind-ups that were going on behind the scenes. This is even before some big games, you know. And, you know, he wrote me a note afterwards and, and you know, he said, Paul, I just want to really thank you for, for inviting me in there. It was great to be back in the boiler room again. That's the term that he used, the boiler room, which, you know, uh, which is a very interesting term that he used. And, and uh you know, underneath the floorboards in the team. That's where the real magic happens. When you say um, fun, do, do you mean on the golf course or off the golf course? Uh, I, I think on the golf course, that word adventure, I use the word adventure. That, that to me was fun. You know, we're, we're on a voyage here. We got, we got thousands and thousands of people. You know, like one of the things I used to hate, Sam, and, and I still do to this day, and ex-players are the best at doing it, uh, is talking about how fearful you are in the first tee and how scary it is in the first tee. And ex-players who've been through it all and retired, they're the best at telling you how scared they were. And I, it's like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want anybody talking about that. The first tee is an amazing place to be on. We're playing at home. You're going to stand in that tee. There's going to be 20,000 people around that tee. And every single one of them is going to want you to rip it down the middle of that fairway. So when it all goes quiet and you're addressing the ball, rather than thinking, oh, my God, I hope I make contact. Oh, my God, I'm so nervous. I just want to get it off the tee. Think, no, I'm going to smash this down the middle of the fairway. And when I do, listen for the roar. The roar, the place is going to be electric. Same when you have a putt. You know, when you've got an eight-foot putt or a six-foot putt for a half and it all goes quiet, embrace the moment. Just can't wait to hit that putt because you know you've got the power of 20,000 people around that green in your hands. Something came into my head when I played and, and I kind of brought that forward. And I remember I had it on the 16th green in the Belfry in my first Ryder Cup match. And I was playing with Darren Clark and came to the 16th hole over the last game on the course. And I had a six-footer for birdie on the 16th hole to go all square in our game. And I'm incredibly nervous. Of course, I'm nervous and your, your stomach is turning upside down. But, and it's 10 deep around the green. And as I was addressing it, something came into my head to say, Paul, this place is going to go ballistic if you can make this putt. <laughs> and standing over the over the pot, rather than thinking, oh my God, I hope I don't let them down, I felt empowered. It's like, I can't wait. I can't wait to see the reaction. And of course, I'm hitting the putt with, with such positive adrenaline then and, and, you know, positive energy. And, you know, the minute I hit it, it was in the hole. And, and, and then, of course, the whole place erupts. And then I get caught up in their emotion as well, too. So kind of riding, riding the back of the crowd, that's really, really important. Certainly playing at home, uh, which we were doing. And, and that's when I talk about fun. And then off the fun is the same banter you would have, I'm sure, in dressing rooms and rugby. You know, it's the, it's the bit of crack. It's a bit of banter. The caddies are really important for that. So, so that energy was really important again. I keep going back to this word energy. And it was really important to keep the vibe up. 
to keep that that up, you know. And then you know you don't want to be flippant in any way. Absolutely not. And I, I remember in um, on a Saturday night, just on the opposite side now, where I was worried about that. That as you said earlier, there's a precipice that get, goes over. And we, we had a four-point lead going into the singles on Saturday and I did my team meeting 10 minutes and I was strong. It was about being resilient. It was about we will be the rock when the storm comes. It's going to be difficult tomorrow. America are going to come at us. There's a lot of kick left in the American team. We, we've only one where to go from here. We're expected to win. Now, all of a sudden, you know, there's going to be a different kind of pressure on us tomorrow. We're going to deal with that. We're going to still play with a smile on our face. And our goal tomorrow is to win the session. You know, forget about winning the Ryder Cup. It was to win the session. If we won the session, we'd win by four points. And we were, you know, we'd won every session. And winning every session was, was what we were trying to do. Uh, and I felt I had a really good team meeting. But as the players were f- filing out and I was standing by my podium, I remember turning to Des Smith, one of my vice captains, and said, I don't know if I got that message through because there was still a lot of banter. There was a lot of laughing. Now, after me really putting the hammer down and bringing everybody down and trying to get them focused, they didn't leave the room in a quiet manner. It was still very, very giddy. So what I did was I went down to the team room where they were all, you know, hanging out, you know, playing table tennis or somewhere having some food, whatever. And I went through each one of the 12 players and set them down in the corner and refocused them all individually because I didn't feel that I got it. I got it right at the team meeting uh, and I wanted to absolutely bring it down. It was all a little bit too giddy. Things had gone too well and that was the time to pull it back a bit. It sounds like an amazing environment to be part of. I actually love what you said about harnessing the crowd and being excited for the good thing that's going to happen. I, I remember the last game I played, that, we were playing in a, in a penultimate game to win a series and which was, for, which was for the British and Irish Lions. I remember saying, don't be worried about what's going to go wrong. The carrot is that in two hours' time we can come back in here as the single greatest Lions team of all time. Like, that's that's what we've got to grab. Like, let's mm. go get it, you know? And then mm. on a continuum, you go from that nervous energy, all like, it kind of go up to towards excitement, and it's so much more powerful when you can do that. And there was a... One of my questions was going to be, and I wanted to take you to that 2002 putt, because when I'm on the golf course, or, you know, just as mere mortals, and we're, we're playing locally, in my mind, you, you might say it's completely wrong. I'll walk up to that and I'll think, right, if this was in my lounge, I'd probably get nine out of ten of these. But I'm on a golf course, I'm probably going to miss it. What, what, as an elite athlete, what are you like? From the moment you take that, whether it's an approach shot and you know it's within good putting range, what are you thinking in those moments? Yeah, I mean, it, it comes and goes. It's not steady, you know, and there's been moments in my career when I have faltered under pressure and the pressure got to me and I didn't have the right mindset and misputs or miss shots as a result. And, you know, but I, I was lucky in that instance that I was in an unbelievably great mindset. And again, I put that a lot down to the captain, Sam. And, and there's a little story before I hit that putt, remember. As I hit my second shot, which is a really poor one, by the way, I hit a big pull left of that green with a three iron. Okay, it's not the easiest shot in, the, in golf, that's for sure. A three iron into the 18th green over water in the belt with the Ryder Cup on the line but I, I pulled it way left as I was walking up kind of pretty intense about what I'd done and god what a bad shot and you know beat myself up a bit Sam Torrance who was the captain was leaning I remember he had his, he had his sweater over his shoulder and he was leaning up against the bridge with his arms folded like this with this huge grin on his face and it kind of disarmed me he put his arm on my shoulder when he walked across the bridge. Remember, there's 20,000, 30,000 people screaming at us as we walk up and screaming at me because we were playing at home. And, and uh, he put his arm on his shoulder and he said, look, this is why you're here. This is why you're playing in this number. And this is your turn to shine. And uh, do it for me. Do it for your teammates. And when I walked away from Sam and across the other side of the bridge, rather than thinking, oh, my God, I hope I don't screw it up here, I felt the opposite. I felt incredibly empowered. Just the point that you made there, which is I love that story, which is that, you know, go and grab it. Um, you know, go and get it. I didn't know I was going to do it. 
but I knew that I was going to have fun trying to get it. Uh, and that's the, how I entered it, uh, the chip and the putt. Uh, just give yourself a putt. Yeah, I get myself a decent chip from a bad lie and I get myself a putt. And, and as I looked at the putt, it was almost like I didn't know I was going to hold it, but I knew I was going to hit a great putt. And that was good enough for me. And I wasn't afraid of missing. And the fact that I was going to stand up to the moment and the situation was enough for me psychologically. And, you know, if I'd have missed it, I don't think I would have been completely traumatized and devastated because I knew if I hit a good putt, I, you know what it's like in golf. Sometimes you can hit a perfect shot and it doesn't turn out good. But the fact that I knew I was going to hit a good putt, that's put me in a great mindset. And, you know, I, I hit, a, I hit a, a really pure putt. I couldn't have been any better and, and right into the middle of the hole. You know, I was a great Ryder Cup player because I had a brilliant teammates around me and I was led by brilliant captains. And what you do as a captain is you create a platform for players to play their best. You create an environment for them to go out and play unburdened. Uh, and that's what I tried to do as a captain because that's what the good captains did to me. And in that particular moment, the whole that winning part, Sam gave me the platform. He provided me the platform. Disarming of it, the intensity with this big bushy smile, the fact that he was loving this and he was loving the pressure and he was loving the fact that it was all on the line and he was loving the fact that it was me going to be in this situation. And he was loving the fact that, you know, he'd already done it earlier in his career and he knew what it was like to be able to uh, have an opportunity for it to happen. And it was basically embrace the moment, which, which is what I did. And I've played my worst when I'm worried about the result or I've become too competitive. I have to win. I have to win. I have to do this. Yeah. I have to, I have to, I have to. And all that does is invite and break the pressure in. So again, it goes back to the point that you made earlier, that precipice, that getting that balance right of, of intensity, nervous tension, but not flipping over into anxiety. Welcome back to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, Ryder Cup winning captain, Paul McGinley. I read somewhere that you did a lot of meticulous planning behind the scenes, but that the players only needed to know a tiny bit of that. Was that an important part of the strategy approaching the Ryder Cup? Yeah, I mean, data was a big part of it. But again, if I was going to share all the data that I was given yeah. with the players, again, that loses oh, the simplicity and clarity. Yeah. So the data came to me. And when I met the data team, you know, regularly leading up to it, particularly they helped me with the picks and everything leading into the Ryder Cup. You know, my brief to them was, OK, guys, you got 15 minutes and you've got one page. I don't want to have reams and reams and reams of data and I don't want to get lost in the minutiae. I remember a great saying from uh, Corey Pavin when he was captain 2010 against Monty at his press conference and, and somebody asked him some of the best advice he's got. I think it was Bill Belichick, the, uh, the coach in America, who, who gave it to him, which was, you know, always remember to make the big thing the big thing. And I think that's, that was huge for me. Um, again, it's the big stuff I'm interested in. I'm not interested in the minutiae. Yes, you know, the 1% are important and all of that, but I want to get the big things right. If I get the big things right, that's what's important. So when it came to the big things, it was pairings. You know, I had a couple of rookies in the team. I was going to make sure I was going to pair them with experienced players. I was going to set the players to play certain holes depending on, um, on the par five. So for example, one of the first things that got the data team to do was forget about the players. We've had 10 Johnny Walkers played around the golf course at Glen Eagles. Every golf course has got different way to unlock unlock that golf course. What's the skill set you need to win around here? The last 10 winners, the last guys who finished in the top 10 in the last 10 years of the Johnny Walker on this golf course, what did they do well? What was the skill? Were they great drivers? Were they long drivers? Were they short drivers? Were they, you know, did they hit more greens? Did they hit, did they put better than anybody else? Where were the correlations? 
And once I got those identified, I then looked at my team and I said, okay, well, he's good at that, he's good at that, he's weak at that, but I put him with this and they can counteract that. And then I started to put it together. But I was just doing that myself with the data team and with the vice captains, not sharing it with the players. And then when I came up with the pairings, it was a question of then communicating that to the players. Uh, and communication, obviously, as you well know, is, is, is massive, massively important. When I was a young captain, I didn't want to do it. And as I got older, I remember thinking, I want to do this, give this to me. Listening to you now, you seem to be so all over it and you know what you're doing. How did you get told in 2014 first? How did that approach come to be captain? And how did you feel? Because you seem like the sort of person who would have been like, please give this to me because I'm the best guy to, to lead this team. You know, Did you feel like that when you were asked? And, and how did you get asked? I was lucky, Sam, that we have a smaller event in Europe called the Sevi Trophy, it was called back then, and that was played in the odd right a couple years. And on two occasions, I had the chance to captain the British and Irish team in that, and on both occasions, we won. On both occasions, we were miles, we should never have won, we were miles underdogs. And we won on two occasions, and that gave me an incredible boost that, you know what, all my instincts and this template that I think that I put in play and I trialed in all of this, it actually really, it, it really worked. You know, we won, and we won quite comfortably in both of those. So I had a huge amount of confidence in my own ability it wasn't a straightforward appointment when I became captain, to be honest and frank. You know, Tom Watson had already been appointed uh, the captain of the American team at the time. He was a huge name in the game and, uh, you know, one of the great superstars has won five open championships and I think four of those were won in, in Scotland alone. He's a huge name in the game. I had a good career, but I'm not Tom Watson and that's certainly, and it was a body of opinion that, you know, we need to go into, a, you know, a Darren Clark or a Colin Montgomery to match up to that level uh, against Tom Watson in terms of pro profile. Uh, and I was like, no, I mean, there's no correlation between the better the player, the better the captain. Captain is a completely different skill set. And in fact, you can nearly have the argument that the best players are generally not the best captains. Between the, the jigs and the reels, eventually I was made captain, somewhat reluctantly to some people. And I knew I had to prove myself, but I was okay with that. I had a lot of confidence in myself to do that. And uh, I played acute then for the next two years as captain. You know, I let Tom take all the plaudits. I let Tom be front and center. I let the media follow Tom all the way. I was quite happy to be in the slipstream under promise over deliver is what I was trying to do uh, I wasn't going to big myself up I wasn't going to put myself on a level playing pitch with Tom Watson if the media were going to put him on a pedestal because of what he'd achieved as a player I wasn't going to uh, argue with that I was going to let him go there and uh, but quietly I was sitting in the long grass and uh, and I was preparing in my own way and I was chomping at the bit I couldn't wait to be captain I know you're very well versed in leadership I would actually love to go into that why you think the good players don't make the best captains. Why is that, do you think? Well, again, I mean, I, I've done a little bit of data on this. I was, I was involved at London Business School and we went in and we did a bit yeah. of research and case studies on this. When you're, let's call a middle-of-the-road player like I was, oh, I say middle-of-the-road, I was, I was top 20 player in the world, so I, I, I reached a pretty good level. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but I, I was never a natural player that it came easy to me. I had to think about the game in a very, very different way than somebody who was incredibly talented, for example. And I think the best captains are the guys that have to think outside the box how they're going to compete against the guys who are naturally a lot more gifted and better, where the game comes easier to them. The guys where the game comes easier to them, I found they don't think about the game maybe always as deeply. They don't have to analyze it as much as the guy who mightn't be as talented. So it makes you think about the game in a more rounded way. And uh, we have some data to back that up when it comes to business as well, too, that, you know, the best sales guy doesn't make the best sales director, for example. You know, again, going back to Alex Ferguson, when it came to managing the players from six to 12 on the team, 
I was that guy. I was that soldier. I knew how to deal. I knew how they were going to feel. That's why I said to him, you know, when you're coming in, I want you to speak about everybody taking the lead and all of that too. But I was never Rory McIlroy. You know, I was never Colin Montgomery. I was never Darren Clark and Sergio Garcia. I, I never played as one of the leading lights on the team. So one of my questions to Alex was, you know, how do you deal with the superstars? What do you do with the superstars compared to the other guys? Because a lot of my communication was going to be done on one-to-one-to-one. You know, what do I say to get the best out of Rory McIlroy, who was number one player in the world that year, and to get the most out of him? So they're things that I learned along the way, and, and I kind of adjusted up. So I had to go and get some little bit of advice as to how they felt as players. I had Jose Maria Lazaro was one of my vice captains as well too, and I relied on him uh, heavy when it came to dealing with the very, very top players because, of course, he was one himself. How did you differ then with your management with players who, like you said, we are 6 to 12s compared to Rory McIlroy's? What would be the main difference in how you approach them in those one-on-one meetings? So again, you know, based on, on, on what Alex Ferguson was telling me as well, and, and one of my old hunch, Anna Lazabal, and, and it wasn't about putting too much pressure on them. It wasn't leading them. This is my main guy. This is the guy. If we're going to win, this guy has to play best. This is what we're looking for. I'm going to be asking him loads of questions. He's going to be the leader. Bam, bam, bam. And putting them on a pedestal and putting that much pressure on them and it was about taking them and, and, and molding them in with the rest of the team and, and that, generally that's what I did more than anything and then the most important thing that I felt was those guys were number one for a reason and the best players not just because technically they were better than anybody else but they also had a driven mindset that was not generally very selfish uh, one of the reasons that great players in golf are they all have a common we all have and all of us who play golf you have to be somewhat selfish in fact all sport but yeah. certainly when it comes to an individual sport like golf there have to be a real strong selfish element to your mindset and an ego so when it came to the communicating with them it was what's in it for them you know why this is important for your career outside of this Ryder Cup and outside of the fact that you're going to win your point here or trying to win your point why you need to do this why you need to set down a marker what the crowd are expecting from you you know and again it wasn't about putting pressure on them it was creating a platform and an environment that they would flower and flourish I love the word selfish and ego. Um, I think a lot of people outside of professional sport think they're the wrong words, but they're actually... And I, used to, I said to people when I was playing, I was like, I can't tell you in a press conference what I'm actually thinking because you're going to think I'm pretty arrogant and I don't want the wrong headlines. You do, ha- And you have to be very selfish in your own preparation because if you don't perform, then you're not going to lead. So I, I love those two words, selfish and ego, because they're... they're vital traits to make it to the top because I get this question from um, a British and Irish Lions perspective when you get the best players from four different countries so it's a very similar Ryder Cup dynamic um, they're all used to sort of being number one in their position but all of a sudden they've got to be a team and they've got to mould together so I get asked that question how do I get a group of players who are all used to be a number one to be able to put the team first how did you manage that? Uh, I, I try to make it about them and why it was important for them for their careers. It wasn't about molding into too much of a team. I wanted to empower that mindset that, that they had they had chiseled from the age of 13. And, and that's why it was very important to keep them within their own team. So I empowered them to have their own team around them, their own physios, their own doctors, their own coaches, okay. you know, made sure that everybody had the team around them individually uh, and also made them have space every evening within the team environment to spend time with their team because that's what they do on, an, on a week-to-week basis, Sam. And I didn't want to yeah. contaminate that by, by asking them to do something that they weren't trained to do or what they, w- they didn't do on a week-to-week basis. So, so I, I created that structure around every player that he had that and, and made sure he didn't stray too far away from what they do on a week-to-week basis. Uh, and then when it comes to, um, you know, the communication with them, to be honest, you play to their egos, you know, and what's in it for them. 
outside of the Ryder Cup, you know, and, and why it is really important for their own careers that they're going to go out here. And, you know, it's one thing to be admired as a great golfer. It's another thing to be admired as a great Ryder Cup player. Um, you know, and that's what Seve Ballesteros had, you know, because you're doing it for somebody else, trying to share that in. So you take an example like, like a Martin Keimer, for example, who's from Germany. And then you take an Ian Poulter, who's from Milton Keynes. What can you say to a guy from Germany and a guy from Milton Keynes that's going to be really relatable, to be quite honest, not a whole lot. Um, so when it came to Martin Keimer, you know, I spoke to him a lot about Germany had won the Soccer World Cup that year. And it was about, you know, every pub and every restaurant and every golf club in Germany is sitting down to watch the Ryder Cup and watch Europe. But all the Germans are sitting down to watch the German guy. They want to know the German guy. And when you come on the screen, you just remember that every pub and restaurant, your aunties, your uncles, where you came from, everything, everybody is going to be pointed and looking and wanting you to perform. So you're representing them. It's representative of your town, your place, your people, your country, where you're from. And, and, and to the point that, you know, some of the players, I would have pictures of their home country in, in, in their hotel room. Uh, I, I was very much into the visuals. Um, I'm, I'm a great visual guy. And I had a lot of uh, wonderful uh, images all around our team environs, whether it be in our gym area, whether it be in our eating area, whether it be in our locker room, whether it be in the corridors on the way to the hotel rooms. I had these massive of images with really important sayings at the bottom and the image represented the saying and it, it was relative like the one I said earlier be the rock when the storm comes I had a picture of this rock and it was a huge image now we're talking about six foot by nine foot we will be the rock when the storm comes and it was this rock in the middle of a raging storm in the middle of the ocean and this ocean is just battering against the rock but the rock is there resilient so I had a lot of images that were representative of the challenges that we were going to face so it wasn't just communication in my words it was also a reminder as they walked down the corridor and they go ah. Oh, Oh, yeah, he mentioned that in the team meeting two days ago, you know. So there's a, you know, it's a yeah. consistency and it goes back to the simplicity and the clarity. And it's the same messages over and over and over, but they're in different mediums. They're not just me saying it over and over. Sometimes it can be visual as well. And sometimes it can be representative in a video, which, you know, I had videos played every night that, that had been made well in advance, you know, to really evocative music. I've given a lot of thought to this, as you can figure out. And, and I oh. loved it, Sam. And I'm sure you're the same when you captain. I mean, it's a, it's a very privileged place to be in. And, and I love being representative of people. Us as fans find it fascinating, the, the whole pairings thing, you know, because you see some people who have really good sort of, relationship and chemistry you mentioned that you put rookies and experienced players together can you think of examples of 2014 when you were having these I'm guessing you might be sat down with your vice captains sort of day before can you think of some examples of why you put certain people together and why you thought they would work there was a thought process behind every pairing I came up with Sam and and again it was it's not just a the pairings they come up with is the order of play. You know, momentum is really important and getting a bit of momentum and getting the crowd noisy in those first few games is important. So I'm, I'm always a believer in getting, you know, your, your informed players, the players that are going to come out of the box quick and getting the crowd going because the players behind feed off that. I'd learned that myself as a player. You know, as I say, I was normally down the order, but I was feeding off how the guys in front were doing. A, a great example is, is Graham McDowell, one of our more experienced players who'd hold a winning pot in 2010 and was a US Open champion. A very experienced guy and uh, a very mature guy. I was playing with him and I had a guy from France, Victor Dubasson, who was wild as a March hare. And, you know, I, I had to kind of have somebody on his shoulder who was going to look after him and, and, and kind of guide him through, you know, this volatile place that a Ryder Cup match is and this incredible noise and, and new feelings and, uh, and team events. So um, I prepared them. And, and during the, 
During the summer period, every time Graham came back to play in Europe, I was controlling the draws in the European Tour and putting Graham with Victor. So he was getting used to, even though he didn't know that, I was preparing them to see if that they would get on okay and the caddies get on okay. So when it came to the Ryder Cup, they played a lot with each other during the summer and it was just a continuation of that and they, they understood each other's game. So again, go back to Lee Westwood, again, a very, very more ex experienced player and, and a, a guy I think who's played the most Ryder Cups. So, oh, him and Sergio are certainly up there in the modern era, you know, playing him with Jamie Donaldson, who was a rookie as well, too. Then Graham, for example, who is our, as I said earlier, you know, former US Open champion, one of our more experienced players in the team. Uh, but I had a plan for him and it was to look after Victors in days one and two and only play one game on days one and days two with a view to then I was going to put him to the front like we said earlier about the Canadian geese that he was going to rise to the front and he was, I was going to put him out number one in the singles um, and you know we talk, go back to his ego then of course he was upset that I was only going to play him twice out of the first four games and I was going to put him with a rookie and he's like you know US Open champion I want to play a much bigger role in that and I said look this is what I'm thinking I'm thinking about Sunday I, I want you to do this job here with Victor in days one and two I want you to only play one game each day I want you to be fresh because on Sunday you are now going to go to the front and I want you to lead out the team on, on Sunday Rugby's not as articulate as golf but we had a, a similar thing called um, as, a, as coaches was it was a shit sandwich you go good bad good <laughs> I've asked um, all of our guests this same question and it's because when I was young, I, I had a bit of help from a sports psychologist and we came up with a captain's compass or leadership compass. And he asked me, he showed me a normal compass from northeast, south and west. And he said, I want you to put on the four traits that you want to demonstrate every day that you think will make you a good captain. If you had to put four traits on your captain's compass, what four traits <laughs> would they be? Oh boy, God, that's hard. Ah. Uh... I think communication will be up there, um, will, yeah. will be one of them. I think putting structure um, would be two, and that includes all the data and analytics and everything like that, will be number two. I, I think uh, creating a platform of fun and enjoyment and, and not be overbearing with the players will be number three. What's the last one? I mean, not over-teaming yeah. it and, and making sure that players remain somewhat individual in their mindsets uh, of what they do on a week-to-week -week basis. and. Uh, you know, more than anything, it's, it's have fun, this sense of adventure. We all love adventures, you know, creating that sense of adventure and almost to the point of the result is, is, is not really relative. If we do all of this, the result takes care of itself. And to be focused on the result and win, 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 it brings your mind always forward rather than the journey. And I want the players to enjoy the journey as things unraveled. I love the fun thing. And I've sort of said this a few times when... Because often the higher up you go in professional sports, sometimes the less enjoyable it can become because it feels so cutthroat, so much pressure. And I'd be walking the dog around the local parks pitch and I see the local team play and just having a good crack and having some fun. I'm thinking, oh God, I miss that. You know, like I wish yeah. I wish I could have that much fun. Yeah. So I sort of love having that fun and almost bringing that childlike enthusiasm exactly. back to the sport exactly, you know, yeah. when you go up to that pressure cooker. So I do love that. Yeah. If I was to say, if you could relive one moment, ride a cup moment as a player or as a captain, which one would you relive? I think as a player, to be honest. You know, the, the, the euphoria of being a player and, you know, when I hold a winning pot, I, I likened it afterwards to like a bottle of champagne. You get it and you shake it and you shake it and you shake it. And then you take off the cork and this incredible explosion happens of just <laughs> everything out. And that's how I felt. Yeah. I was poised over analogy. the pot. And then the minute the pot went in, massive explosion of euphoria. Um, 
but in the captaincy, it was a lot more a sense of job well done. Thanks very much. Move on. Thanks very much. Move on. You know, and making it more about the players. So I think to answer your question, it's hard to beat the euphoria of being a player. And as much as I love being a captain, um, pulling off a shot under pressure as a player, there's nothing that beats that. Um, as much as you might be, you know, putting a partnership together that ignites and, and all of that, that's great. And there's a real sense of, as I said, a real sense of, uh, of job well done when you're a captain. But there's nothing beats the euphoria and the adrenaline rush you get as a player. As we come to a close now, what would you like your legacy to be? When people look back on, on your career as a player and a captain, what would you like your legacy to be? I think genuine, you know, that I brought integrity in, and being genuine to what I did more than anything, Sam. You know, um, I know I'm not the best golfer ever played the game. I know I'm not the best captain that ever captained. But I, I do feel that like I moved it to, to a new level. Um, and I know watching the captain since on both sides, America as well, I think they've learned a lot from what I did and, you know, the talks that I did afterwards. And, the, you know, I wrote a book as well, too, with London Business School called Landscape of Success. So, yeah, I'd like to think that uh, things have been, uh, you know, I've, I've done things with, with integrity uh, and a sense of genuineness uh, about it and, and made the most of, of what I would consider to be limited ability. You know, captaincy came a lot easier to me than playing the game. Um, and even now talking to you now, I mean, I'm loving talking about it. I love reliving it. And not that I'm talking about it all the time, but as you spark things in my head, you know, I'm able to go down different avenues all the time because, you know, the pathways that I go down, I've, got, I've gone down so often. But then you put me out in a golf course again and I got to relearn the game again because I haven't played for a week. I, you know, it takes me a while to get ahead of steam up again in my golf. And I'm a guy that needs to practice a lot before I get a pretty decent round out of me. So captaincy came a lot easier to me than, uh, than certainly playing did and still does. Where can people find more information about what you do then? Because you've mentioned London Business School and books and leadership talks. You know, where can people find you? Because I, I, you know, I, I, if I was someone listening to this, I'd be like, I got to listen to more of Paul McGinley. He's been he's been brilliant. So yeah, where can people find out more? Yeah, well, thanks for for yeah. I mean, I've got a I've got a Twitter handle and uh, there's a website uh, as well too, paulmcginley.com, and there's also a marquee.com as well too on my on my Twitter handle, which opens up a whole load of areas where I do golf course design, I do my sky commentary, I got my business talks. I do the landscape of success. I've brought that to a visual form. I've done it in a video form. I videoed it as well as uh, as well as doing the book. I didn't put the book for sale actually in the shops. Um, I didn't want to be the guy, you know, selling a book, holding the writer cup. Look what I won. This is how I did it. Uh, so I wanted to do it in a different way, and I financed it all myself. I didn't get a publisher involved. Um, I got a, a, a nice lady, a friend of mine, to uh, help me write it um, and put a bit of structure on it. And uh, we had eighteen chapters, as in eighteen holes of golf. Uh, London Business School did the did the opening to it and, and all the different ideas um, that I brought to the table I, I kind of had a chapter on each one and, and it's, an e it's a coffee table book it's not an intense book it's got lots of visuals all the images that I spoke about earlier they're all represented in, in, inside the book and uh, it was more about like a like an advanced um, business card. Uh, that's what the book is about more than anything else and give people a taste of, of the ideas that I feel that I've worked in, certainly in a Ryder Cup context. And as I say, you know, I started out the podcast and I'll finish it by saying I've been very, very privileged to have learned so much from all of the greats in European golf. And I'm just so lucky to have played in this era and captain in this era because it has been quite incredible as you think about it, you know, as we've transitioned from, as I say, Seve Ballesteros and Nick Faldo and Ian Musnum and Bernard Langer all the way up into the, to the Rory McElroy's and the Sergio Garcia's, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter's. Uh, I've been lucky to be involved with all of those guys uh, and it's been an incredible, incredible journey. 
listening to you speak for the last hour or so, I tell you, I'd run, if you were my coach, <laughs> I'd run through brick walls for you. <laughs> so honestly, oh, but Paul, honestly, th- thank you so much. You're You've very given, fine, thanks. As a fan, you know, so much enjoyment, you know, watching golf over the years and your insight you know, today has been absolutely fascinating. So genuinely, thank you so much for your time, everything you've done for golf and the sport, and now in, in the leadership world as well. So yeah, really appreciate you coming on. It was great catching up with Paul, really fascinating captain and so enthusiastic. I absolutely love Paul McGinley's attitude and mindset towards that first tee, because that's something I'm particularly, and I'm sure most golf players are absolutely petrified of. And it may not just be golf, it may be a talk, a public speaking, it may be something you have to do in your workplace, but just changing that shift of mindset from being negative and worrying what could go wrong to just being so excited about what can go right. And when he talks about listening to the roar of the crowd and imagine that first tee going straight down the fairway, I absolutely loved his positive approach to that. And I'm sure a lot of us can take that into our lines of work and our lifestyles. If you would like another crowd podcast to listen to, can I recommend Beef's Golf Club with European Tour winner Andrew Beef Johnson and his golf fanatic comedian friend John Robbins. They are building the Dream Golf Club, a place where anyone can get involved. Whether you're an experienced golfer, a total amateur like me, or you just want to go and give it a go, this is the club for you. Each week they cover a different golf topic and welcome a whole host of big name guests into their clubhouse, including comedians, pro golfers and Hollywood actors. To listen to the podcast and become a member, search for Beef's Golf Club wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder, you can get in touch with any thoughts or questions by emailing us at captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag CaptainsPod on Instagram or Twitter. You can also find us on LinkedIn by searching for Captains with Sam Warburton. My guest next week is a rugby legend and an old friend, former Lions and Island captain Paul O'Connell. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong.